0: Welcome to Airspace from the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. I'm Matt. And I'm Emily. Over the last
1: century, we've learned a lot about our neighbor Mars. And consequently, the way we think about and show the red planet has changed a lot too.
0: Mars has shown up in everything from Dante to Matt Damon, Percival Lowell to Perseverance. We've been thinking about, dreaming about, and acting out Mars for hundreds and hundreds of years.
1: Today we're going to focus on fictional depictions of Mars, and we're going to use one of our favorite space movies, The Martian, as our jumping off point. That's on airspace, presented by Olay. So if it's been a while since you've seen the movie The Martian, which came out in 2015, it was a movie directed by Ridley Scott, starring Matt Damon. And all of this movie is based off of a book by Andy Weir of the same name, The Martian. The basic story is a group of six astronauts who are living on the surface of Mars in a habitat, but they have to leave really quickly because there's a big windstorm coming in that's going to essentially threaten their infrastructure. So they actually have to leave the surface of Mars. In the process of doing this, one astronaut named Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, is carried off in the wind, and he's presumed dead and left on Mars. We find out pretty soon afterwards that he's not actually dead, and the rest of the movie is essentially Mark Watney surviving on the surface of Mars while NASA tries to figure out if or how to save him. Mark Watney is still alive. Oh, my god. Uh, I know that's a surprise, and uh, I know you'll have a lot of questions. But uh, here are the basics. He's, he's alive, and he's healthy. We, uh, we found out two months ago, and... Uh, Decided not to tell you. Two months. Oh, my God. I was strongly against that decision. So, Matt, you you just finished writing a book all about representations of Mars in our culture. What were some of your first impressions when you first saw The Martian?
0: I think what I like about The Martian most of all is that it's a pretty faithful depiction of the Mars we know today from scientific exploration. Years of rovers roving on Mars, of orbital missions of, you know, lots of global data from Mars and lots of, you know, views of the Martian surface and the Martian horizon, that Mars was very much on display in the Martian, as was, you know, a lot of the thinking that people are doing now about what it would actually take and what it would be like to send the first humans to Mars.
1: Well, and I think what I enjoyed so much about the film was exactly what you touched upon. You know, this wasn't a movie that was 100% accurate, but it was so well-informed by all of the actual research that has come back from scientists working to understand the red planet, as people like to dramatically call it, right? Yeah. But, like, the habitat that the astronauts were living in wasn't this, like, palatial, futuristic-looking thing. It, It looked a little bit like... The habitats we've seen either on the International Space Station or mock-ups of what a habitat might look like on Mars but stationed in, like, Hawaii, for example. It was realistic in a way that was believable, and it took a lot of the fiction out of the movie in a way.
0: Yeah, you know, it's very clear, I think, that this is not a movie about space tourism. It's not a movie about people going to Mars and having a good time. (laughs) It's very much about something going wrong on Mars. But even before that, it's a movie about a scientific expedition. And, you know, it's very much rooted in the Mars that we've been studying since the first flybys in the 1960s that transformed Mars into, you know, a planet of rock and where geology is sort of king of the sciences, (laughs) or shall we say queen of the sciences, in terms of of understanding Mars and unlocking its, its, uh, its story. And this idea that Mars has this story, that it has a sort of evolutionary history that in some ways is parallel to Earth, but also diverges from Earth's specific history. You know, that's the Mars that we're visiting. That's the Mars that we've been studying since the 1960s.
1: The Martian is very much set in what we think humans on Mars would be like today. When did we first start seeing Mars enter the sort of scene of fiction?
0: We've been imagining Mars for thousands of years, probably more than thousands of years. And we've been telling stories about visiting Mars for hundreds of years. I like to think that every century has its own version of Mars. So just like we have our own version of Mars that Mark Watney visits and gets stranded on, these earlier periods had very different versions of Mars. So one of the earliest examples of someone who actually goes and visits Mars actually happened before Mars even became a world. It happened, you know, in the 14th century, when uh Dante Alighieri wrote his uh Divine Comedy which most of us read parts of in high school right if not high school maybe <laughs> Speak college for No? Oh wow.
1: <laughs> no, okay, well I was bit. required to Mm-mm. read
0: the the Inferno. You never read the Inferno? <laughs> no. no? Oh okay. Okay. I'll I'll give you a quick a quick refresher. <laughs> Thanks. So Dante, as the character in his own book—I mean, this is kind of like Dante writing Dante fan fiction—goes on this great journey, starting with the different layers of hell. That's the Inferno. Then he takes a trip through purgatory and begins to ascend through the heavenly spheres. And that's the part of the Divine Comedy that's called The Paradiso, and it's the third book in that trilogy and you know Dante the writer and his readers in the 1300s didn't really have a concept of the earth as a planet surrounded by space and other planets like mars also existing as worlds out there in space they thought that as you rose above the earth you entered into different levels of heaven kind of you know these were the heavenly spheres and dante was showing the readers a fictionalized version of what these spheres might look like as you sort of ascended toward God and experienced what those different spheres, you know, contained. So when people saw Mars in the sky, they assumed that Mars was in one of those heavenly spheres. So as Dante was writing the Paradiso, he had to decide which virtue Mars would represent, because the spheres each represent a virtue like, you know, prudence and justice and temperance, you know, these great things. I think we all know, kind of historically, in in astrology, Mars has been considered kind of a bad omen, and the same was true for Dante in the medieval period. Mars was thought of as this sort of harbinger of war, of pestilence, of plague. Right. Well, Dante decides that Mars is the planet of war, but it's the heavenly sphere where the souls of the people who died fighting for their faith are going to reside. So he associates it with the virtue of faith. This is the the planet of martyrs. And so when Dante gets to Mars, what he sees is not a planet that he can set foot on. It's it's instead taking the form of this giant illuminated cross, representing the ultimate martyr in Dante's mind, right? Jesus Christ. And that cross is sort of like this great fireworks show of all of these lights going off everywhere. And he finds as he gets closer that that's the souls of all of the martyrs moving along the cross. And he hears all of this intense religious music. And, you know, Mars becomes this incredibly important planet on his way to uh, the Imperium to meet God.
1: So Dante's kind of one of the first people to think about what it might be like if people were to travel to another place in space, essentially. But you can sort of break down our progression of how we view Mars kind of in a, in a couple of different ways. And I think, for me, very little science fiction I have engaged in in my lifetime as a scientist, which is embarrassing sort of starts with H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, which we've talked about on the podcast before, but it's probably one of the if not the first science fiction book I've ever read in my entire life. And the depiction of the surface of Mars is really focused on there being Not only life on Mars, but intelligent life that for the most part often is dangerous to humans. What's kind of that progression of understanding that we now have, which is there may still be life on Mars, but it's not going to be intelligent and it's really hard to find?
0: Yeah, so stories in the in the 17th century onward started to imagine Mars as a world that you could set foot on and that maybe even could have its own forms of life. So throughout the Enlightenment, there were all kinds of stories about populated Mars. And, you know, honestly, it wasn't just Mars. It was the entire solar system. The entire solar system was thought by some to be populated because, you know, why would God create worlds without life? It wouldn't make sense if you, if you believe in a universe that's been created by an intelligent creator, you know, why would it just be life on earth and nowhere else? So, you know, Mars started to be this planet that was thought of as being very similar to earth and possibly or probably having life. So, you know, at the time that H.G. Wells was writing about Mars around the turn of the 20th century, he was imagining intelligent Martians that come from Mars down to earth to attack, you know, human civilization and and try to take over earth. It was almost a foregone conclusion in a lot of astronomers' minds that, of course, Mars has life. The only controversy was, is there intelligent life or not? And that was what the Percival Lowell Canal controversies were all about, is Percival Lowell built a whole observatory in Flagstaff so that he could look at Mars and map what he thought were canals that were built by intelligent Martians who were trying to irrigate a planet that was drying out and dying. H.G. Wells uses that controversy as a jumping-off point to tell his story about the conquest of Earth by Martians, which is itself, you know, a kind of a, a satirical take on the British Empire and what it was doing around the world at the time. You know, the Martians were basically the British Empire but in, you know, Martian form.
1: Well, and I think that's one of the really stark contrasts to the movie The Martian, right, which is that not only is there no intelligent life on Mars other than astronauts from Earth, right, who are very intelligent people, a big portion of this film is Mark Watney trying to feed himself, right, famously potatoes. Let's do
0: the math. Our surface mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they send 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a
1: planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. But he's trying to use the Martian soil with... The things that he has available to him, namely poo, to be able to create an environment where he can support his own life, but also the life of plants that he can use to then, you know, support his own life. So it's, it's a really distinct departure from the early depictions of Mars— In many ways, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century, people really did believe in a living Mars. Even those who, you know, were totally anti-Canal still believed that life on Mars was probably kind of like life at high altitudes on Earth. But that all, as you know, got shattered in the 1960s with the first flyby missions. And then, you know, those hopes of finding life on Mars kind of gradually have been pushed into sort of smaller and smaller margins, I guess you could say. Like, people started thinking more about, well, where could life be hiding? Or where could there be evidence that life once was there? And kind of the you know, progression of missions since then has really been about finding where life could have originated if it did originate and developing this story of Mars that we know today, where Mars may have one time in its deep past been similar to Earth and may have had the right conditions for life to originate. So, you know, that's a very different Mars. <laughs>
1: Aside from the impossible windstorm that kicks off the whole plot of The Martian, the movie does a pretty good job of accurately depicting the environment of Mars as we know it today. It's a very inhospitable place for Mark Watney to try and survive. But the sci-fi trope of survival is really big, right? So while we know from an astrobiological standpoint that things are really good at surviving, shout out to water bears, but... This premise is really, for me, one of the more exciting ones because it's the one that kind of relies the most on the environment that's been created by the author or by the science that's kind of backing it up.
0: Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of incredible about Mars today is that we are inundated with images of Mars and we know what different parts of Mars look like, basically because all of the rovers have Twitter accounts and they're constantly putting out these images along with the scientists and engineers that are putting out images through, say, the JPL website. We are seeing these images constantly. And these images... Not only do they look familiar because we're seeing them all the time, but they also look familiar because they kind of look like the desert, right? They kind of look like these frontier places where humans have made lives in the past and where sort of unlikely um, towns, cities, etc. have grown up because people are good at surviving and people are very good at making lives even in what seems to be the most inhospitable places. The problem, right, is that Mars is like the most inhospitable place times 10 or times 100, right? It, it's it got like every hazard that you could imagine from, you know, the thin atmosphere to the radiation to the very fine dust particles that are going to get into your lungs, right? It's not going to be a very easy place to live, whether that's on a small science mission or, you know, trying to build some kind of colony or town or or whatever it ends up being, it's going to be a very challenging environment. Days. If the oxygenator breaks, I'm going to suffocate. If the water reclaimer breaks, I'll die of thirst. If the HAB breaches, I'm just going to kind of implode. And if by some miracle none of that happens, eventually I'm going to run out of food. So, I mean, Mars is. Yeah a very hostile planet from a human perspective, but at the same time it does seem like it's our best bet. You know, if we want to extend human life to some other planet, Mars has the best game going for it in our solar system, right? The main problem being space travel takes a long time and Mars is pretty far away even though it's our nearest neighbor. The problems of a Mars mission seem almost insurmountable based on the the technologies that we have today and just, you know, The human challenge, right, even forgetting the technology, just the human challenge of being in space for that long, being on another world for that long, and then, you know, having to survive so far away from everything that has ever defined you as a human. To me, that seems insurmountable. I guess there are people who think that they could handle it.
1: And so this brings up a really good question, and I think a really interesting question that's really rooted in science fact, which is about long-duration spaceflight, which NASA's been actively pursuing in terms of how does it affect the human body, how do humans tolerate it. You have astronaut Scott Kelly, who was up in the space station for a record-setting number of days, um, and there's been longer and longer duration trips to the International Space Station since. And Matt, I don't know if you want to talk about it a little bit, but, you know, there's a lot of ongoing real-life plans for how we're going to get humans. And I think you made a good point, right? We don't have the technology yet to make this happen. But there's some ethical and sort of philosophical questions you have to ask about what it's going to take to put humans on a four-year round-trip journey in pretty extreme isolation. We're now at this point where we have such a good understanding of Mars— And there's still so many questions, but we've sort of split off into these two separate tracks of still trying to understand Mars as a planet and as an environment over the last four and a half billion years. And now also the complex question of how do we make the movie The Martian a reality, except for without the catastrophic, life-threatening situations.
0: Right. And as we know, you know, from previous episodes on this podcast, NASA has plans to go first to the moon with the Artemis program, and then use the moon as a stepping stone to eventually put humans on Mars. So, you know, developing those technologies as they go to put humans on Mars. And so, you know, that vision has become sort of part of our reality. It's talked about in political circles, in scientific circles, etc. And so it really does reflect how we think right now about the possible future of Mars. And one thing that I think is interesting about that, when I was writing the book, I was seeing how in each sort of historic era in every part of the world, when people were looking at Mars and seeing Mars in a way that made sense to them, It really was a reflection of who they thought they were, how they thought they related to other people, to other parts of the world, and how their world fit into a larger universe. And, you know, that universe has only gotten bigger uh, as time has gone on and as we've been able to see out further and see more of that universe. And, you know, we've started, I think, to be more ambitious about what the place of humans in that universe should be. So this idea that humans should be able to occupy not just the Earth, but also the Moon and Mars, and then maybe from Mars, out to, you know, some of the exoplanets that we're looking at now or to moons in the outer solar system or wherever that is. And the way that we talk about what we're going to do when we get there, right? Utilizing resources, building homes, building new nations, new communities, right? This very much reflects what we think our place in the universe is now and can be in the future.
1: And if folks want to know more about Mars and the work that you've been doing, what can you tell them about your book?
0: So my new book, For the Love of Mars, A Human History of the Red Planet, comes out this month, wherever you buy books.
1: Airspace is from the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. It's produced by Katie Moyer and Jennifer Weingart. Mixed by Tarek Fuda. Additional help from Amy Stom and Sophia Soto-Sugar. Airspace is presented by Olay and distributed by PRX.